0: Right. As long uh, as I uh, get to
1: choose the title of the podcast. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, use you, you, spike words.
0: You, <laughs> Ooh, this is. Uh, I, I I didn't expect to be uh, to have to negotiate on my own podcast. I right. thought we <laughs> could but, have uh,
1: something about you know lesbian cruise takeover or something. <laughs> you know? We can, we can do that. We yeah. can do that for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or sure. we can have a dig um, at
2: Daniel Cormans who I didn't even write into the script but then went on an extended rant about how much I hated him yesterday at dinner, so.
0: It's Friday, May 6th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I am Paul Peters, master Student in Civil Engineering and Peregrine Falcon Triplet Dad, and today I'm not joined by Gordon Derrick, contributing editor at Dutch News, and Brenda from Bristol Stalker. But with me today are Rowan Pasco, the grand dame of the Dutch News uh, nl website, and Pim for Time critic, and Molly Quell, contributing editor at Dutch News and Genocide Gala attendee.
2: I made a note in the script that it was not a Genocide Gala, it was a space gala that had genocide. These are two different things.
0: Okay, well, please explain to us what this uh, job title is about then.
2: It's very nice to be back. Thank you for asking me yes, to be here. It's very thank to
0: you uh, thank you that you, the two of you wanted to join me because Gordon is uh, as i said uh, currently on holiday in the United Kingdom, and that means that usually we would just you know uh, skip an episode, but I think we already did that two or three times in the past month or so so yeah that would be uh, a little bit too much to uh, to have uh, another episode skipped so uh, i asked you to join us and uh, yeah you you were um so nice uh, to to honor us with your presence even though um um, um it, it, it comes with some difficulties uh, uh, try
2: talking to you <laughs> managing anyway.
0: you when uh, when uh, when you are together but that's okay <laughs> um molly your genocide gala what's that about
2: wait can i first ask why gordon's who's not here has a job title and the job title is
0: Brenda from Bristol stalker You're not familiar with Brenda from Bristol. I am
2: unfortunately not familiar with Brenda from Bristol.
0: Uh, she is a, a, a lady that uh, was once asked, there was a snap election, isn't that Isn't it called a snap election, Robin?
1: I think it is. Yeah, uh, it depends what you mean, but yeah, probably. Yeah, there
0: was a snap election announced by uh, Theresa May, and the BBC mm-hmm. just interviewed some random people on the internet, uh, uh, on the streets, asking what they were thinking about. And uh, this li- this very old lady, Brenda, who lived in Bristol, she started ranting about, uh, yeah, politics in general in the United Kingdom. And her her rant was just fantastic. It's uh, 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 yeah, she 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 That's complained right. about uh, politics, and she said uh, uh, another election. Not once again, are they crazy? What are they doing in uh, in London? Uh, it's a, it, a fantastic moment. So every time I see Bristol, I, I immediately think about uh, Brenda.
2: I'm I'm ah. sure Brenda appreciates that.
0: I'm going to have to look yes. this up. Yeah, I will uh, send a link to you.
2: Please do. Uh, no, I went to a, uh, a a space gala because my <clears throat> now husband is a rocket scientist <laughs> and is a member of some space society thing, and they had their I guess 75th anniversary. And it was this very, you know, fancy dress thing. And Andre Cowpers was there in these famous space people, I guess. Um, yeah, the,
0: the one of the Dutch astronauts. Yeah,
2: the Dutch astronaut yeah. guy, who's very nice. Um, but it was... It was Did sl- you get an interview? I, I spoke to him. We had dinner with him. He was very friendly. He was very nice. Um, chatted with him. Yeah. Um, he, we, I was, I was reminded of how uh awkward it can be to explain what i do for work which i haven't really had to deal with (laughs) during covid because of course you're not socializing this was like i think the first time i'd really been out to an event where it wasn't like people that knew who i was like friends of mine basically people in our like social circle because this you know we're sitting at this table during this like fancy dinner and somebody at the table asked me what i did for work and i said that i was a journalist and later on in the evening was then probing what sort of work i did and my husband leaned over and was like oh she does she does genocide and then like picked up a <laughs> piece of bread and kept chewing as though like this was just a totally normal thing and then people were thing. very concerned about what the hell yeah. i uh, i did for work <laughs> so uh yeah it was a little awkward for everybody and yeah 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 people were but you
0: journalistically cover genocides. you don't commit them yourselves right most
2: of the times you know yeah we (laughs) we get up to other things on the weekends i'm allowed to have hobbies so
0: (laughs) that's right all right um and robin you uh are annoyed by the dutch coverage of uh Pimford town aren't you
1: i don't know i'm really annoyed about him i'm just really curious that's 20 years ago that that he was shot dead in a car park in hilversum and there's an awful lot in the papers and I haven't gone through it all but there seems to be a lot of kind of eulogising and not and a lot of talk about what his impact has been on Dutch society today but you know if I think back to the the days then he wasn't really a very nice person and he he was a terrible misogynist and you know that cannibal's all got a bit forgotten because we still have, you know, town in Rotterdam, which is the biggest party. So he's sort of still around, but we've kind of almost forgotten what the man stood for at the time. And and um yeah, I don't know. I'm just kind of surprised, really. I think by seeing all the all, all the coverage, and the Vox Grant has a an editorial devoted to his impact, and it doesn't really say what it was. So um I'm a more curious than a critic, I would say.
0: Hmm. Okay. Yeah, it's um, um all the articles seems seems sort of drenched with nostalgia yeah. or something, right? They they all, all talking about uh how exciting uh, the times were back then, you know, journalistically and politically. Um and and the they they aren't uh, talking about you know what he stood for and what he said and what he wanted. Uh, it's, uh, it's it's almost as if yeah they are they are sort of missing the exciting times back then.
1: Yeah, I think there's a big chunk of that. I mean, I was working at the Financial Duckblood when it when it all happened, and you know we were in the newsroom, and it was it was a total shock, of course, to yeah. anybody working in there in the industry or anybody in the Netherlands at the time. And, and, you know, the reverberations were enormous. But, yeah, there is a kind of... Let's just remember what the man actually said, you know. I mean, yeah. there was the wonderful comment to the female reporter, which was like sort of, oh, don't ask me questions. Go back home and do the ironing. You know, I mean... Yeah. You know, that kind of thing.
0: Never mind. Mens ga koken. Yeah, that's, yeah. Was that's what his, it was, uh, wasn't it? Yeah, was Yeah, yeah one of his famous... Uh, yeah. Um... Yeah, and that brings me to my um, job title. Um, yeah, there is a, a peregrine falcon sitting in uh, one of the towers of the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam. You can uh, watch that on the internet. There is a webcam uh, uh, on the Nest. And uh, yeah, the, their eggs came out uh, this week. Uh, and they had three eggs. So now they have t- three very nice, very cute little, uh, yeah, how do you call that? Chicks. chickens? Chicks? Chicks? Chicks, yeah. yeah, so uh, yeah, very nice. You can, uh, we will link uh, to the uh, webcam in the liner notes. And if you live in Amsterdam, you can uh, probably see them uh, flying around uh, the Rijksmuseum uh, w- once in a while. Uh, so, I uh, saw definitely them last check year. that out in uh, at the Rijksmuseum. Oh, nice! Yeah, yeah, well, I lived,
1: a, when I lived in Bloemstra, I saw we saw it. We thought, what on earth is a paraquin falcon doing here? And then we looked it up and then we realized uh, where it had come from. The, it's very odd flying over, yeah, a yeah.
0: They they live in a city. Yeah, they are the fastest animals in in the world. It's uh, it's it's pretty fascinating. Uh, but yeah, they just see buildings and towers as as a cliff, right? That's that's how they uh, regard them. And so they just uh, live there if if there is a nice. Um, yeah, place uh, for them to sit, and there's also a famous pair in the Abian Amro building at the south as I believe. So uh, yeah, they've been yeah, there for dra-
1: years and years and years. They come out every year, and it's they always do an analysis of what's in the nest when they've kind of gone, yeah. and it's all sort of chicken bones and stuff. It's great. Yeah, yeah, it's very, very amazing. Um, Aren't there yeah, also a us-
2: pair that are nesting at that uh, the AWE building, the tall building at the TU campus?
0: no it's the it's the tower of the architecture faculty oh the architecture um, faculty yeah because yeah. i feel like so there's the, the also a there. webcam
2: sometimes for those that i see like floating around on, on okay Twitter. i haven't yeah. seen
0: that one but i i noticed that they were flying around uh the architecture tower yeah. so yeah there you, you see them uh, very often in the in, in in city and in urban areas so that's pretty fascinating but that brings us to the uh OPF of the week uh that comes from a uh, legal firm mass law Uh, which uh, during the pandemic uh, was very known for regularly suing the government over corona restrictions and measures. Uh, Several prominent corona skeptics, uh, especially on Twitter, uh, with a background in law, uh, such as Eva Vladingerbroek and Reisa Blommerstein, started working for the firm, and every time mass law started a case against the government, uh, for example for uh, the introduction of the corona access pass, it also started a crowdfunding campaign uh, with which they raised quite a lot of money, um, and for some mysterious reason the law Law firm was always in desperate need for uh, loads of money in order to hire themselves um, it should also be noted that uh, mass law lost every single case uh, they brought forward and now that the pandemic is over the specialized department uh, fundamental law and mitigation doesn't have so much to do anymore and this week the law firm announced it has dissolved that department um, a little over a year it was set up and uh, they will stop every uh, and they will stop all corona related cases. Additionally, Maas' laws said they were cancelling all cooperation with the famous corona-skeptic people. Bart Maas uh, told Algemeen Dagblad that an important reason for the decision was the behaviour of the previously supportive people uh, after he had uh, put a Ukrainian flag in his Twitter bio. Um, of course, in uh, solidarity with uh, Ukraine uh, after Russia invaded that country. Uh, he said, they started to harass me and it is uh, it surprised me how easily people switch from being corona-skeptic to full-out support uh, President Vladimir Putin. They said I was was a traitor and that really hurt me Um, it's also uh, suspected that the uh, lucrative stream of donations that have dried up might have also contributed to the decision
1: maybe we could be charitable and not suggest it's the donations he really had a principled standpoint finally have you ever interviewed this guy robin sorry have you ever interviewed this guy no 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 he does not have a principled standpoint i think
2: but I was I was almost taken in by this news on Twitter because I was in like nine hours long 12 hours long hearings in Luxembourg in a windowless courtroom it was completely like out of my mind and I saw someone retweet the fact that Ma's Law used to have a legal dog on their website and I was like oh this is really cute I want to do a fun interview with the legal dog and then started looking into this and I was like wait a second <laughs> wait a
0: second yeah so the, the yeah. first time you heard about this law firm was there was that company dog and yeah. you were immediately uh, uh 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 interested i was very interested but, uh, yeah and then i just uh, kind of like luckily you backed
2: do- away very slowly yeah. it's like never mind luckily
0: you did some uh, some research yeah. uh, as opposed to several talk shows that invited willem engel over yes. on their show yes. um um but yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, all these uh, corona-skeptic people that always uh, are, are, you know, g- gain prominence on, on social media and all of a sudden uh, need quite a lot of money and, and start crowdfunding uh, whatever and, and gain a lot of uh, donations and all of a sudden buy property in Spain and stuff like that. They never really explain what they're doing with that money and this is, uh, this is a similar case, I think.
1: It's a law firm. Let's be careful here. (laughs) You just don't want to get us sued, Robin. No, no, thank you. (laughs) No, not at all. I won't. I'm sure it's all fine. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's all okay. If the dog uh... leaves
2: the law firm and goes to work somewhere else, I would be interested in doing an interview with it, though. So I'm just putting that out there.
1: (laughs) There, There's a dog at uh, another law firm. I think, um, oh, no, it's a financial advisor. They also have a financial advisory dog as well. Oh, Mm.
2: I, don't, I have less of an angle for that, but maybe. Maybe if I can come up with something, I can interview the financial advisor dog.
0: This week, Schiphol Airport continues to be in utter chaos. The Netherlands commemorated those who died during World War II and celebrated its liberation from Nazi Germany. The country dropped dramatically in the international press freedom index. There are more houses worth over a million euros than ever before. And with the current housing market, it is no surprise that people started drinking more.
2: I thought they were drinking the same amount, just in a different place. I guess you can't go afford you, you to go can, out to drink because you've paid all your money into a house, so you have to drink at home.
0: Well, if you spent the same amount of money on drinking at home than you did at outdoors, then you are probably drinking more. This is true. And because if you look at
1: all the rules the government's planning to bring in for homeowners, you're definitely drinking more. True. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
2: Skipple continues to be unable to do its single job, getting people on and off of planes... Amsterdam's airport has been the scene of long queues, delays, and flight cancellations over the last week as a result of a staffing shortage and post-COVID demand for travel. The previous weekend, baggage handlers staged a wildcat strike over their absolutely garbage pay and working conditions, but this previous weekend, Skipwell had no one to blame but themselves. Skipwell CEO Dick Benskop, whose annual salary is 431,731 euros, with the potential for a 20% bonus on top of that has finally apologized for the dumpster fire, but warns that things are not going to get any better. It is clear to us that the summer has to be different. This must not happen again, he said. And one way Skipple might make things different is to simply limit the number of flights allowed to land at Europe's third
1: busiest airport. And Molly, you had some experience of it yourself this week, I think.
2: I did. I flew on Sunday um, and I returned on Thursday. And it took me 35 minutes to get through the line to even get into the airport on Sunday. In all, it <laughs> took me more than three hours to reach my gate. Uh, fortunately, I'm a person who goes to the airport very early, even in normal times. So I made my flight without a problem. Lots of people did not. I have never seen so many people running for late flights. Um, every, You know, sometimes if you're at an airport and there's like a... Uh, a layover that's like delayed and you'll see like a group of people like running together, but this was just constant sort of people sprinting through the airport trying to make flights.
0: <laughs> and all in all different directions. And everybody course, going so, in different yeah. directions.
2: Yeah. yeah, um, yeah when yeah, I returned yeah. yesterday, I didn't personally experience any delays, but the baggage area was complete chaos. I'm not sure exactly what was happening here, but it appeared that when I walked into the baggage area, that pretty much every single baggage terminal they had removed the baggage from the previous flight that people were not there to pick up, but there was already people in line for, like, the next flights that were supposed to be coming off. So there's just masses of people and then just, like, chaos luggage everywhere. Um, Hmm. So it was very... uh... Very stressful. KLM did attempt to force me to check my carry-on bag when I was flying out of Luxembourg because the flight was very full, which I informed them I would not be doing, and I was really glad that I did not uh, let the gate agent in Luxembourg bully me into doing that because I would probably still be trying to track (laughs) my bag down and skip all now.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's uh, it's utter chaos and uh, it's 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 like, you know, the NS had a, had a couple of uh, uh uh also had a storing a couple of weeks ago and they basically just stopped running the trains, right? They said, well, everyone who is now, you know, travelling to some destinations, uh, good luck. Uh, you're on your own right now. And this is basically what Schiphol is asking um airlines to do as well, just cancel uh, cancel flights. Um, as much as possible basically uh, so that they can handle um, uh, the rest of the traffic but you know people are traveling somewhere. That means that they need a new flight. Yeah. That means that they will book a flight in the coming days. And that means it's getting busier uh, again as well. So yeah, they it seems like they're just pushing the, the problem forward. Yeah. And
2: there was an interview where somebody was from um, the travel agency. What is the, what is
1: it? Uh, uh, the AVR. Yeah, exactly.
2: Hey, who was basically saying that like, yeah, if you, you know, if you miss your flight, you don't get the money back from your travel thing, right? Because these are booked with two different often with separate organizations, yeah. right? So, of course, people have like a really high incentive to try to make it on these trips that they've paid for because they're not going to get any money back for the trip itself. Um like whereas, you know, if you maybe had just like booked a quick weekend away or something, it might be attractive to just scrap it or whatever because you probably aren't going to lose a whole lot of money over that. But, yeah, I mean, if you've dumped 5 grand into a family trip to Thailand, KLM is not going to convince you to not try to get on that flight. This is never going to happen. So I don't know. This needs need some better uh, planning over there.
1: Quite yeah. a lot of law work to be done, I think, in the future. Maybe uh, maybe the certain law firm uh, could you know step into the breach. <laughs> this is true.
2: I hear that they need uh, they need some more some more clients. Maybe they can start suing KLM over this.
0: Um, which is also basically a government uh, uh, company right now. Yeah. Um But Molly, you—I assume that now, right now, with all these uh, problems in, in uh, at Schiphol, you are uh, just doing your part for the environment and uh, and and stay home for the foreseeable future, right? No,
2: no, I have to fly again this weekend, <laughs> or Monday. So I'm just going to be back there right. reporting live from uh, from Schiphol. Going to Luxembourg again? Yeah, of course. So. I'm just, uh, you know, I, I'm trying to take the train for most of these trips, but sometimes it's just, like, not feasible. And so, yeah, you end up flying. But, yeah, I mean, it's not ideal. And... If
1: you think you've got three hours to wait to get on a plane and all that hassle, why don't you just take the train? I mean, five hours on the train, you save time. Ah, uh, Robin,
2: it? Robin, yeah. here is the problem. The train on paper takes five hours between the Netherlands and Luxembourg, which is not one train. It's like three to four, depending, but you have to run those trains through Belgium. And the only thing less efficient than skip all is Belgian trains. (laughs) I have never taken the train to Belgium where it has not taken me seven to eight hours to do this and have twice been stuck at the border between Belgium and Luxembourg because the Belgian train gets in, after the time that the last train to Luxembourg leaves and then you have to sort of scramble around in this tiny Belgian town to figure out how you're actually going to get to where you need to go um so even with all of the uh delays and stuff with the flights it's it's I'm still unwilling to take my chances with with the Belgian train system it's, absurd. it's I, absurd. I've
1: never had any clue. It's completely ridiculous. It's totally and ridiculous. Let's forget people. Let's put money into getting the yeah. international train. Please. Sorted. I mean,
2: I personally would much rather... I don't like flying. I would much rather take a train. It's much more comfortable to travel by train. Please just give me like a direct train from Amsterdam to... Or Breda or Maastricht or whatever to Luxembourg. And it's perfect. But no, we all fly. And it's always the same. It's like me and 45 dudes in, in suits
1: because everybody's <laughs> going
2: for, you know... EU stuff that's there. There's not not a whole lot else to do in Luxembourg.
1: Money, money, no. things to do with money. Yeah. So, suitcases of money. Yeah, suitcases and
0: tanker uh, gas. Yeah. yeah, that's basically what you can do yes. there. This week, the Netherlands commemorated those who died in World War II and celebrated its freedom. Remembrance Day, or Dodeherdenking, was held on May 4th. On that day, the Netherlands remembered civilians and soldiers who died in wars and peacekeeping missions since the start of World War II. Uh, Always a very broad category, right? It's not just those who died during World War II, but it's everyone who died ever since. Um, Flags were flown half-mast and commemoration ceremonies were held throughout the country at war memorials in virtually all municipalities, followed by two minutes of silence held at 8 p.m., During the two minutes, trains stopped running and no planes landed or took off from Schiphol. But that's uh, normal practice practice right now. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, The main uh, ceremony was held at Dam Square in Amsterdam, where King Willem Alexander and Queen Maxima laid wreaths at the National Monument, along with Prime Minister Mark Rutte, members of the armed forces and survivors of World War II. And it was for the first time in two years that people were allowed to gather in the square to join the King and Queen in the two minutes of silence. Um, The Russian invasion of Ukraine had a clear impact on the commemorations. Many people uh, told the NOS, for example, that the war in Ukraine was an extra reason for them to come to Dem Square and to join the ceremony. Uh, Amsterdam Mayor Femke Halsma said that the memories of the survivors of World War II, of people who have fled bombs, of soldiers who risked their lives for peace and security, are flooding back now that there is a war on the continent again. And at some places, the Ukrainian flag was flown alongside the Dutch.
1: I was there actually. I went um, to Dan Square for ages, so I I mm. went and it's always very impressive,
0: um, isn't it?
1: It's amazing. You got yeah. you're in this massive crowd of people, and then it just goes quiet, and you can't hear a thing, apart from the seagulls that were flying overhead. Yeah. But, um... Did they not <laughs> get does, the message yeah. that they were supposed to be silent? No, no, they they just no, carried yeah. on. But this year it was, I think it was, I don't know, it coinciding with some kind of tourist break, but there were tourists trying to force their way through the crowd all the time and they were awful and 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 you kind of stood there and you're trying to listen to the stories of the survivors and there's some guy with a rucksack going let me through let me through it was oh it was very um kind of oh, wow. irritating and so in the end the bit of the crowd i was in kind of hemmed them in and just said you can't move you have to wait and they kind of you know they were very big dutch people they kind of shut up it was uh but it yeah. was a bit of a there's shame. also
0: literally nowhere to go because you know the, the square is uh is is is, is, is cut off basically yeah. you can't pass yeah you have to go around if you want to pass um i was at the waldorper vlakte uh, near The Hague um, in the dunes uh, that was used as a sort of execution site mm-hmm. uh, during the uh, World War II um, and I was I've never been there I, I joined uh, at Dam on several occasions but I never went to the Wald or and you have this you know it's al- it's already a fi- very quiet place because um, uh, because it's in the middle of the dunes uh, right but, but they have this enormous bell which they ring um, uh, and, and that was also very um, yeah, very impressive. Uh, uh, I was really moved by the whole uh, ceremony. Um, in a way, I didn't expect uh, it was uh, yeah very, very moving.
1: It's an extraordinary place just to go and visit at any time of the year. It's always quiet and it's yeah it's it is yeah it definitely has something. It really gets to you. I completely agree. I was
2: in Luxembourg and I was supposed to have a meeting that was scheduled at eight um, with a sort of diverse group of people. And then somebody emailed at about seven forty-five and was like, "No, we have to. We can't start until ten after eight or five after eight because we have to have two minutes of silence." And people were like, "I mean, you don't have to have two minutes of silence, but it was very insistent that we had our two minutes of silence, which I thought was good. I think it's. I think it's a nice. I think it's a nice thing that happens. It's good to sort of remember these." kind of tragic events and it's nice that the Dutch I think take it as seriously as they do
0: yeah, and it's not only remembering the dead, but it's also uh, just reflecting on, on what freedom is and what it means. And yeah, especially at this time when, you know, a couple of thousand uh, kilometers away, uh, people are literally fl- fleeing uh, their country because of war. Um, and also, if you, uh, I don't know if that's the same in Amsterdam, but if you walk around in Delft, you see uh, cars with Ukrainian license plates uh, 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 all the time. It's uh, the, These are people that have fled war, right? These are literally refugees. It's very... Um, yeah it's very um, moving to see them here and uh, yeah it's uh, it it, it made the day even more special I think
2: yeah more meaningful in some ways yeah Yeah. I agree and so Paul what happened uh, the following day
0: yeah, on, on May 4th we commemorate, but on May 5th we, we celebrate. That's sort of the duality that uh, that we have in the Netherlands. And uh, the celebrations of Liberty Day were kicked off by Prime Minister Mark Rutte, uh, who lit the liberation flame at Hotel de Wereld in Wageningen. That's where the German High Command signed the capitulation on May 5th, 1945. Uh, today we celebrate that we can live in freedom here. We feel that that is a privilege even more so than in other years, he said, referring to uh, the war in Ukraine. And throughout the country, music festivals were held. Uh, a group of singers served as uh, the freedom ambassadors and they were flown to all corners of the country by the Royal Dutch Air Force to perform at as many festivals as possible. There was also a little incident. Um, they thought the, the uh, 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 Duncan Lawrence, who won the uh, Eurovision Song Contest, thought he was going to Rotterdam, but they landed in The Hague so he jumped out of the, uh, uh, the helicopter and yelled uh, uh, good afternoon, The Hague or something, um, uh, but he he was in Rotterdam, so that was a little bit of an awkward moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what 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 actually uh, went wrong there. Um Probably uh, uh, Schiphol was uh, directing all the flights. Yeah. I don't, I'm not entirely sure. Um, but the day ended uh, with the traditional Liberation Day concert on the Amstel River in Amsterdam. Um, it's it literally held on the river there, and everyone joins with their boats. It's always an impressive sight. Uh, and that concert was attended by King Willem Alexander and Queen Maxima. And as always, that concert uh, ended traditionally with um, yeah the the. All-time classic, uh, uh, We Meet Again by uh, Vera, Vera Lynn.
1: I went to uh, the Wester Park to join the festival. I thought it was a, you know, do my duty. It was rather fab, actually. It's an amazing mixture of people that you see when you go there. It's, a, a, you know, such a, you know, ancient people with grey hair and kids. And, you know, it was, a, it was extremely jolly in the sunshine. Hmm. Um, worth going. And they had a whole Ukrainian stage in Amsterdam as well. And they had Ukrainian artists... Performing this. Oh, yes. really? so uh, oh. they made a big thing out of it, and yeah. there were the ambulances. You know, we ran a story on Dutch News a few weeks ago about the uh, the, the charity here that's um, made up of Ukrainians, Belarusians, and Russians to buy up old ambulances and take them to oh. Ukraine. They were yeah. there, so I actually saw oh, the ambulance really? that's oh, going tomorrow. Cool, and uh, will be taken over there. And I had a chat to them, so that was that was good that's too. Nice. So there was a lot of focus on Ukraine in Amsterdam. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah definitely.
2: I was fighting about baggage and, and skip ball. It was, it was much less sort of meaningful. Which is,
0: yeah, you, li- you live you live in a country where you're free to do that, yeah. so uh, yeah, you should be grateful. It wasn't for that really
2: too. my choice. If I had had the option, I would have <laughs> probably chosen a different path. But this was this was the world that I was living in, unfortunately.
1: The Dutch uh, reputation for being a safe place for journalists has uh, taken a bit of a hit. Now the Netherlands has tumbled to. 28th place in the annual press freedom index which is compiled by reporters without borders the list is headed by norway denmark and sweden as these sort of rankings usually are and last year the netherlands was in sixth place the reason for the drop which is pretty dramatic however you look at it is uh, partly due to a change in methodology because more weight is now being given to the actual safety of journalists rather than the legal and the social situations that allow them to do their jobs but um in addition, the organisation said the Netherland in the Netherlands, the polarization of public opinion with regard to the COVID restrictions and immigration has led to an increase in verbal and physical aggression against journalists, especially photo and camera crews. The consequence of this, the report said, has sometimes been self-censorship and a reluctance to tackle certain subjects. Abuse and trolling on social media are inhibiting news gathering. And publication, while female reporters and journalists of color are particularly vulnerable to such attacks. Is this something that that's only only happens in the Netherlands?
0: Uh, I can't imagine it,
1: it, it is, but I don't think it is. But it seems to be taken very seriously by you know by the Dutch people who collect the statistics. And of course, the we did have the very high-profile murder of a crime reporter Peter Adafree in July last hmm. year, and that sort of was a shock i think throughout europe and that may well have had an influence yep. on how people look at it i mean that investigation's still ongoing but the murder may well be linked to his work in supporting witnesses at a major gangland trial but there have been other cases connected to doing you know directly to doing a journalism job if you like in Groningen, the firebomb was delivered to a journalist's home and during the coronavirus protests there were several were attacked or had cars driven at them most, most notoriously in the religious village of Urk, where one journalist trying to cover the church protests was attacked by three different people on different occasions, one of oh. whom drove at him in his silver BMW. All three have actually been sentenced to community service. And, of course, the fake news that's being peddled, you know, by far-right parties like Forum for Democracy and the coronavirus whoppies, you know, isn't helping either. You know, even NOS, you know, the National Public Broadcast, has taken the logos off its outside broadcast vans because you know of the risk of trouble
2: yeah they said that people on the highways were like driving in front of them and slamming on the brakes which seems crazy to me but this is part of the reason that they took the logos off but actually now when you go to places where there's a lot of broadcast stuff there's a lot of the vans have no like logos and stuff on them i see this more often now that the nos has done it
1: other people are following suit as well i think they're not
2: the only ones that have had issues um what about us, Robin? Has Dutch News faced any uh, sort of issues like
1: this? I don't think so. We might have become a bit more circumspect about what stories we paste on social media. I mean, you, you'd know about that. But um, I think we probably think about it if they're likely to bring out the trolls in big numbers because of the policing more than anything else. But I can't think of any big stories we've not covered because they could be risky. But then, you know, we're not often out door-stopping people who uh, don't want to talk to the press like frontline reporters are. I did get shouted at by a bunch of middle aged anti coronavirus demonstrators once who mistakenly thought I was one of them and were most put out when I asked them how they voted and they told me Form for Democracy. But um I think the real problem that we face is actually getting answers from people. Uh if you've tried to contact Amsterdam City Council Press Office, they're a disaster. They never get back to you. I mean we've been trying to get an interview with Mayor Femke Halsimer for years and every time they say, Oh, she's too busy or, Oh yeah, we can fit you in, is fifteen minutes, half an hour enough, you know, and I think there's more there's more on that kind of way that we have a trouble doing our job you know, and ministries are bad too, justice ministry, immigration uh, ministry and department, you know, really never get back to you with really straightforward and simple questions. You know, it makes you wonder what they've got to hide sometimes, actually. But, Hmm. you know, Molly... I think you're a member of the Foreign Press Association, and I know that there are specific issues facing foreign journalists. You know, what kind of things are they been talking about that they've experienced Well, it's, here? it's
2: interesting that you mentioned sort of people kind of dodging, officials kind of dodging the press questions, because uh, another member of the Foreign Press Association, a, a French correspondent in the Netherlands, just gave an interview to Bayonair. Um, They just did a sort of thing about the issues that foreign journalists are facing. And one of the things that he talks about was how difficult it's been to get people to talk to him during the, especially during COVID, um, and that they come up with all kinds of excuses, including saying things like, well... Like, we're just not interested in talking to foreign press because this isn't our sort of target market, except that, like, foreigners live here um, and also, like, lots of Dutch people live abroad. So, I mean, I think that there is a lot of these issues. I was at a meeting with um, the former uh, or the health minister, the current health minister, Ernst Kappers, a couple of weeks ago, and he got a bunch of questions from several German reporters who were living on the border between the Netherlands and Germany And say, yeah, it was a disaster during COVID because it wasn't clear whether you could cross and all of these problems. And like this is an issue for our German language like constituents, right? Like this isn't the decisions that are taken in the Netherlands don't just stop at the border, right? This has an impact on the countries that are surrounding them. Um, And some of my other colleagues talked about difficulties with harassment and intimidation, getting arrested by the police at protests, issues over the police not wanting to recognize foreign press cards, this kinds of stuff. So I do think that there's been an an uptick. I had a pretty ugly dust up with a bunch of whoppies. I guess this has been two years ago now that we had to get the police involved and stuff. And so I think that, like, yeah, I definitely think there seems to be more. I think to Paul's point, like... I don't think that this is a unique to the Netherlands kind of problem. But, you know, the Netherlands thinks of itself as being like a very progressive, liberal country where you have freedom of the press and the media is important and this kinds of stuff. And I think that, you know, that that sort of attitude about itself is perhaps not as well-founded as I think a lot of Dutch people would like to think it should be.
1: I think I'd agree with you there. I think that that sounds, you know, the way it is. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, we know... Our readers are foreign. There was, there's definitely, like with the mayor, she'll always give an interview to the BBC or she'll give an interview to the parole. But uh, she won't give an interview to us, even though we say, but we have, you know, we have a lot of readers. It's still this yeah. kind of like, yeah, who are you little foreign people well, over there? Also,
2: like, I think that during the Amsterdam elections, there was no stem visor in English until we pushed this issue, which seems absurd to me, because there's a huge contingent of internationals in Amsterdam who speak English, better English than they do Dutch. So it seems wild to me that you're not going to allow these people to participate in, like, the the democracy that's here. Like, you're in other towns, small towns could manage to have their stem visors in English. Like, why why couldn't Amsterdam get it together?
1: And there's a lot of embarrassment about that, I can tell you. Some
0: 4,300 Ukrainian refugees have found jobs in the Netherlands since April 1st. Figures from state jobs agency UWV have shown... Ukrainian refugees are not required to have a work permit, but employers who take on refugees have a duty to register with the UFA. In a week after April 1st when registration became compulsory 550 people had found work. That number increased by 850 in the next week, and in the last week of April some 1,350 employers said they have taken on a Ukrainian refugee. Some 40% of the refugees worked via agencies, for instance in logistics, production, or as cleaners, the UFA said. The hospitality sector, horticulture culture and business services, where there are also major staff shortages, are also proving to be popular. Over 47,000 Ukrainian nationals are so far reported to have settled in the Netherlands.
1: So that's on, that's on the one side, Paul. People are getting jobs, that's good. But on the other, what's this about the Russian ships bringing oil into into Rotterdam and Amsterdam still?
0: In a weekend, uh, Dutch port workers refused to deal with one ship carrying Russian gas oil. Uh, the ship tried to dock in Amsterdam but was refused access after the FNV trade union had called for a boycott. Uh, the call not to unload the Sunny Liger that uh, flies under the flag of the Marshall Islands was a gesture of solidarity to the Swedish port workers who had refused to deal with the ship uh, a few days earlier. The move was supported by the Amsterdam City Council. The Sunny Liger is currently at anchor 35 kilometers off the Dutch coast, but a second ship also carrying Russian oil was able to dock and unload. Because ...because uh, the Union hadn't called for a boycott for that ship. Uh, Russian oil imports to the Netherlands are not banned under the EU sanctions... ...but ships sailing under the Russian flag... ...or which are clearly allied to Russia are not uh, allowed to moor... ...unless they are carrying food, oil or gas. Uh, this might change however because the european commission has drawn up a plan to gradually ban oil and gas imports from russia in 6 months the imports uh, of raw oil and gas should be banned and at the end of the year they should also apply to uh, refined oil products it's a little bit strange why at one ship you you refuse to deal with but the other you just allow to uh, to come in it's uh, yeah seems to seems a bit arbitrary i but, mean i yeah, think it's okay. what you
2: said right that they're doing this in solidarity with the the swedish dock workers who refuse to let the ship
1: dock it, it doesn't yeah s- there, aren't, there aren't any legal grounds yeah. to re- refuse the ship permission no. to dock no. because they're not technically russian yeah. i think they're just but I'm, I'm
0: sure there's not there's not just one ship that uh, tries to dock in sweden a russian ship right there must be plenty of them yeah
2: but i mean i think one there's one probably not so many ships that try to dock in sweden are turned away and then show up in the netherlands that would be my guess that this is hmm. kind of a unique circumstance yeah. I mean, in sort of, I think, defense of the dock workers here, I think they got in a lot of ways what they wanted, which was a lot of media headlines about like pushing back on this kinds of stuff. And I think, you know, the goal is sort of to remind people that, you know, you cannot be in, you know, there are ways to fight back against, you know, the Putin regime in ways that are not simply just going to the front lines and fighting in the Ukrainian military or something like this. So
0: I suspect that's what they wanted their action to do.
2: Meanwhile, Russian nationals living in the Netherlands are not having a great go of it, I understand, Paul.
0: Yeah, that's right. Russian students and at least one scientist have reported that they received phone calls to ask about their loyalty in the conflict with Ukraine. Uh, That's what uh, several universities and the education ministries say. The callers say they uh, represent the Russian government and they want to know if the person in question supports the invasion of Ukraine or not. Uh, a spokesman for security service AIVD Day said the calls can be directly linked to the invasion. Russians in the Netherlands have access to free media and are in contact with family and friends in Russia. The criticisms they are making are not to the liking of the Russian authorities, uh, he told the Financiële Dagblad. None of the people who were called wanted to speak to the paper except one woman who said she began receiving calls when she had put a Ukrainian flag on Facebook following the invasion. He asked me if I supported Ukraine. He was friendly, but in the context of the war, I felt uneasy and intimidated, the woman uh, who wished to remain anonymous said. Students are not the only ones to experience the long arm of the Russian authorities. The clergy at the Amsterdam parish of the uh, Russian Orthodox Church are moving to the Patriarchate of Constantinople rather than the one of Moscow because of threats from the Russian Orthodox Archbishop in the Netherlands. Four priests and the dean took the decision to move because they uh, do not support the Russian uh, church backing of the invasion of Ukraine. Ukraine. The decision is extremely painful and difficult for all concerned, the church official said in a statement last month.
1: We've had a lot of trouble trying to get hold of Russians so willing to talk for articles. We wanted to do something about, in the early days, about the Russian reaction. And it's really hard to get people that, that will talk publicly, give their name. And we've had a lot of kind of weird comments from people as well who. We don't trust that they actually really are, you know, critical that they could well be planned. So it's it's a very difficult thing to sort of find people who Russians who will talk publicly.
0: Yeah, it's also part of the information war, right? That's uh, it's it's we are we are in the middle of not only a real war but also an information war, and and um, um, you you see propaganda coming out of uh, Russia all the time, and uh, yeah, it's also w- really worrying that you see so many yeah you know just dutch people on on the internet on social media and even sometimes politicians that repeat this propaganda so easily and uh yeah it's uh, it's it's a really worrying development yeah If you have some money to spare since you can't buy Russian oil or gas in the near future or are saving on your travel expenses because your flight will probably be cancelled anyway, why not consider sponsoring us on Patreon? For as little as 1 euro or dollar a month you can support us and keep the podcast running so we can provide you with your weekly doses of uphef, quirks and features of life in the Netherlands and, of course, the news. This week, we welcome one new patron. We say uh, a very big thank you to Jan, of whom we uh, don't know anything else, but we're very grateful of your support anyway. Uh, if you have a question or anything, don't hesitate to ask. And if you'd like to become a sponsor of the Dutch News Podcast as well, log on to patreon.com dutchnewsnl Dutch News NL.
1: According to a real estate data company, Calcasa, the Netherlands now has an increasing number of homes worth more than 1 million euros. They account for 3% of the total housing stock and the number actually rose by 70% last year. So at the end of 2013, there were 15,000 homes worth more than a million euros in the Netherlands. And now there's 143,000 apparently, according to <laughs> Calcasa. Most of them, of course, in Amsterdam, go to that saying, and 583 are on the Kaisersgracht, uh, one of the, the three big ring canals, and uh, that has got the most one million euro how, plus homes in the country. How uh, many? How many? Uh, how
0: many real estate objects are on that
1: freaking gracht? I mean, five hundred eighty-three. Really? It goes oh. up to like number nine hundred or something. So. I'm surprised okay. the number uh, is not
2: higher. The thing that I find surprising about this is not that there's m- not more million euro homes on the Kaisersgracht. It's it must only be because
1: people like subdivide them into smaller and smaller things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean the Kaisers, you know, in the old days, you know, they were broken up into tiny yeah. units. I mean, you six, seven hundred thousand euros will get you a tiny apartment on the Kaisersgraf. Yeah. They come up for sale occasionally. You know, a, a studio for six hundred thousand for twenty four square meters, yeah. and it's all over the local press. Yeah. Uh, I think it's interesting that there are twice as many in Amsterdam as there are in the Hague, and poor old Rotterdam and Utrecht trailing down there a bit. Groningen, prices soaring, many more houses over uh, over a million euros. And that's because uh-huh. a lot of people are moving out, you know, with COVID, working at home, they're kind of looking elsewhere. And, you know, Blumenthal, are uh, still top of the list when it comes to having the most uh, percentually. In uh, in Arnhout, 74% of the houses would cost you over a million <laughs> wow. euros if you wanted to buy there. I assume that that's... Not that I would want to. I assume
2: that this is because of the inflated market from ecstasy pill manufacturing right
1: um could be yeah. lots of thatched cottages yeah. i mean you know that costs a load
2: those thatched roofs are really expensive i don't understand why people want to buy houses with them I find it very confusing um so the government's efforts to uh, get the housing market under control robin seem to be uh, working about as well as Skipples' plans to get uh, the waiting <laughs> times under control <laughs>
1: oh well, it's a pretty fair comparison possibly uh, um actually it's not entirely true because it, it does seem as if investors uh, are buying fewer houses when they come onto the market but that's because of rules uh which have uh, said that owners can only live in houses under a certain rate so you can't buy a house that's that's cheaper than say 350,000 to rent it out so that's kind of taken some people out of the market uh, as has um, the property transfer tax which went off but you know that is actually having a knock-on effect on the number of rental houses for people who can't live in the social housing sector so uh, AB Number has actually just issued a report which shows that the number of new rental properties to come on the Dutch market fell by nine percent last year so um, in Amsterdam we know it's Virtually impossible to find anywhere to buy or rent, and just three thousand new rental homes came on the market last year while the population grew so it's very really difficult and uh you know, the government's pledged to increase the number of properties for rent outside the social sector um but you know so far not much not much has been happening uh
0: what 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 is the government uh doing about this?
1: Yeah well it's not really very clear and the new housing minister Hugo de Jonger is uh, <laughs> currently working out how he plans to do it uh, I just,
0: although god forbid that Hugo de Jonger will ever become CEO of Schiphol i mean it's uh, it's already a mess but you know if he takes over then we can just literally close the airport because no single plane will ever will ever take off from that airport ever yeah. again i think yeah,
1: that's yeah he hasn't really I- done very much dynamic so far let's uh put it that way i mean he, he wants to limit the the rent rises in the free sector which will apply to you know all the listeners of this podcast who uh, live in the netherlands um last year private landlords and the then housing minister agreed that private sector so non-rent controlled houses the rent could go up by one percent plus inflation what's happening hmm. to inflation yeah so uh that's going to yeah. change next year um So private landlords are kind of pissed off about that. But uh, he's also planning to cut down the amount of weight that's given to the value of a property We're working at how to price it. Um, Social housing rents here are determined in this really complicated and old-fashioned punter system, a way of adding up points. So you get a point for having a luxury bathroom tap, a point (laughs) for having a nice radiator, a point for having a balcony more than a metre wide, All that kind of stuff. And the value of the property was also kind of part of it. But They're now going to cut that down back from 100% to 30% or 35%. And that means... That that, seems
0: long overdue. I have
1: a a question. It might be, but it...
0: What is
2: a luxury bathroom tap? Does it do something (laughs) besides produce
1: hot and cold water? Like what? Oh, Goodness, yes, they're defined. They have to be a single one, you know, with a kind of handle at the top that you can turn yeah. and it mixes it for you. A single mixing tap, I suppose you could call them. This yeah, is nice what we are qualifying finish. as
2: luxury, a tap that works. Is that my understanding <laughs> of this situation?
0: Um, no, you, you you have these old-fashioned tabs where you have a, a tab with hot water yes. and with cold okay. water, and if you wanted to have a certain temperature, you had to, you know, figure out what know which tab to open in which way and that that, that's the i guess the 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 cheap ass uh, tab and yeah if you have a different one then that's the luxury one
1: i think you're about right paul having gone through this having calculated how much uh, an apartment is in terms of the point system it is quite bizarre and you have to measure every little piece of floor to get your meters and if somebody comes to check you know they'll start telling you that that little alcove doesn't work because it's not big <laughs> enough you can't include it in the square meters it's quite bizarre uh, but you know the property value thing is going to mean some houses that are currently free sector are going to go back down into the public housing sector the social housing sector with rent controls landlords don't want that so they're going to sell them so that could mean that we get a few more houses coming on the market but then they will be really expensive houses so it doesn't help people who've who need affordable housing either? It's uh, um, a bit of a disaster, really. And the answer is um, build, build, build. So, uh, w- yeah,
0: <laughs> bower, bower, bower. Yeah, <laughs> you worked Daniel Coolhouse nicely oh into this story. God. Yeah, yeah. You know that he was, um, you know, his expertise in Parliament was was housing. He has uh, no before. expertise, Paul. Uh, Do
2: not say he has expertise. No, he
0: doesn't. Nope. He he just it boils you know complicated matters down into one mantra and that is bau 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 or in the case of uh, Schiphol vliegen vliegen vliegen. Yeah. So um, I yeah, mean, it's uh, that's, I guess it's, uh, in defense
2: of this, he's not wrong that we need to build more houses. <laughs> no, he is wrong about the airport thing, yeah. but he's not wrong about the housing oh. thing. So so what should be done, Robin? You seem to have thoughts and opinions on luxury taps and stuff. <laughs> luxury taps for all. Um, and <laughs> a chicken in every pot and a luxury tap in every bathroom
1: <laughs>
0: yeah lennon should have run with that slogan you should put that on the side of the yeah. bus
1: no but you you used to get extra points for having a tap a bathroom tap and a sink in a bedroom and landlords used to do that in the early days to get houses out of the rent controlled sector so you might go and look around a house and see a bedroom that's got a sink in it and that's why oh. you've got an extra point for it wow not that uh-huh. it would be nice to you that you had a sink in your bedroom it was to get get more points you know i think the first thing we have to do is recognize this is not going to be quick it's a long 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 term project to build more houses it's the government's got a target of a million by the uh by 2030 uh yeah um given the fact that Hugo Dion is in charge of this process, it <laughs> might not actually happen. I think we have to recognise that, but um, there are other things that you can do. You know, the rules on flat sharing are really changed to make it virtually impossible for a group of young folk, you know, to share a house together. They could relax those rules, you know, and make it possible. I mean, of course you've got to have measures to stop landlords dividing a house up into 25 rooms of 12, you know, of three square metres and sticking a bed in them, but you know, That's something they could do. Uh, Housing corporations, they should be encouraged to build more social housing. And that means councils, the bad guys who are charging masses of amounts of money for land, have to cut their prices too. And they're putting all sorts of demands. It's a bit of a stalemate at the moment. And developers are sitting on the one side going, it's fine. You want us to build new affordable housing. You're offering us land. The average price now has gone up nearly 10% in the last year for land. Um, but you're telling us we have to put 40% social housing on there with the rent control, so we can't do it. We won't do it. So there's, somebody's got to break through this uh, um sort of stalemate almost and uh, Hugo de Jong is the man to do it. <laughs> what if well, good apparently. luck to Hugo. What if we told Hugo de Jong
2: that for every percentage point he lowers the price of housing in this country, he can buy a new pair of shoes. We will the taxpayers will fund a new pair of shoes for him. Do you think that that would create an we incentive We will be out system? of
0: this housing crisis in I think in weeks. I think. I think
2: he would solve this problem. Yeah, yeah for sure. It's a brilliant idea. Let's okay. do it. Beer consumption is back to pre-pandemic levels, but where we are all boozing has changed. People have taken the lockdown model seriously and are choosing to drink more at home than at bars. That's according to a new report by the Dutch Brewing Association, Nederlandse Brouwers. The volume of beer sold in cafes and bars was down 7.7% in the first three months of this year compared to the same period from 2019, but that decline was offset by a 6.5 increase in sales for home consumption during the same period consumer confidence is at an all-time low the hospitality sector is suffering from major staff shortages raw material prices are rising and inflation remains high the association said so are you guys drinking more at home no comment no, <laughs>
0: no. I, I i virtually don't drink at yeah, home Yeah, we don't really drink that much yeah, at home i'm either. not a no I'm not an alcohol drinker uh, uh that much, and yeah, I never sort of crave a drink or something. As opposed, but, uh, that might have to do clearly. You uh, don't with fly for alcohol a whole to lot if you don't ever cr- 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 yeah, crave a <laughs> <exactly>. drink. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I just don't never have any alcohol uh, in house. No. So yeah, I never have to. I I simply cannot drink at home because I never have alcohol uh, here. I have buckets of alcohol Um, in my house.
2: But we don't drink that much at home, (laughs) so it's not really a great system. Hmm. No, I think... um I I understand this. I I also think that a thing I sort of learned from the pandemic is that... So I had a a friend around for a drink a couple of weekends ago. And I was out in the city center running some errands and like walking back to the house, trying to decide where we were going to meet. And I was thinking, as I'm walking past all these cafes on a really sunny day, like I just want to have like a cold beer and sit in the sun. And it's going to be a nightmare to try to find a place on a terrace. And then I was like, I own a house with a balcony and a garden where I can sit in the sun. And I have (laughs) beer. Here. like i we're just gonna have a drink yeah. at home which is what we ended up doing and it was lovely so i think the sort of takeaway from covid for me has basically been that like yeah it's nice to go to the pub you sometimes, can drink at but home you can just drink at home <laughs> with your friends instead of like drinking yeah. and having to like elbow the guy next to you because he's blowing cigarette smoke in your face so I, yeah um,
0: and it's much uh, less expensive yeah, it's way of less course.
2: expensive so
1: yeah. yeah it's also way more embarrassing going to the bottle bank
2: I mean I don't, do, I don't I'm right. not the one that takes the out the recycling of in my house So this is not my problem
1: I'm always concerned There's sort of a little old lady monitoring yeah. me And going oh she's back I again so With too. another carrier bag yeah. full
0: Now I come to think of it Robin uh, I went to Daniel Arens' show And he talked a lot about his, uh, his Alcoholic uh, neighbor And uh, it all makes sense right now I have to admit Did he, Did he really? <laughs>
1: because he has he has made Buy comments about ticket. his neighbors before <laughs> 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 and we've not gone to see him yet and we've been told don't go and sit in the front row whatever you do i don't need no that.
0: there was nothing no, no comments on, on on his neighbors don't worry but he has two shows right he doesn't do one big show but he does two smaller shows i only went to one of them so might be that in the other one uh, he talked about you or another unspecified neighbor
1: fortunately there's a law firm that that has some work that it needs to do we could use them
0: Um, that's all that we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. If you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. You can also back us now on Patreon at patreon.com dutchnews.nl and earn yourself a free shout out on the podcast. My thanks to Robin Pascoe and Molly Quell, not to Gordon, and we'll be back next we week. We also would like to thank Brenda from Bristol yes brenda from bristol of course we should do that Oh, you haven't talked about Daniel Koerhuis, uh, Molly. You can
2: ask me at the end how I feel about uh, Daniel Koerhuis, if you want. I'll go on a oh, rant yeah. about how dumb he is.
0: <laughs> Nobody knows who he is anyway. Oh my God, he's so no. He's the uh, Adams Family butler. I just don't understand
2: how you have the audacity to go to Schiphol when the lines are, you know, seven hours deep because of a staffing shortage and suggest that the thing that will fix this is opening up another airport. Where are you going to get staff to run Lelystad? They can't find enough staff to run Schiphol. Like, do we think that like Flavalon? She's ranting. Sorry. There's no reason to think that Flavolon has a bunch of people who want to be baggage handlers for 11 euros an hour. Daniel Corhouse, Mons, whatever the hell his name is.